You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Welcome, glad you're here today. If you're a guest, I want to welcome you to Redeemer. My name is Jordan. I serve as one of our pastors, and I don't always preach in a t-shirt, but when I do, it's because it's a great shirt that's supporting a great cause. We talked about this last week, but uh, we're partnering with Autumn Gebert, who's a member here at Redeemer, and her nonprofit, Infinite Rescue. She's printed up some t-shirts that follow along the theme of Jeremiah, our study that we're in, Um, Hope and Future, Hope and Future Grace. And um, Infinite Rescue works with, um, she, she's trying to raise awareness for mental health issues and particularly um, resourcing Christians for how they can find Christ-centered resources as they struggle with mental health. And so Autumn is doing a great work. We want to support her. So if you want to buy a t-shirt, they'll be available afterward today, all different colors and styles and cool shirt. My grandfather is probably rolling over in his grave when I'm preaching, uh, not out of the KJV, which... Uh, was the only version to him. Two, I'm wearing a t-shirt. And three, I'm going to say some words today uh, that, that um, most people would think, you can't say that in church, uh, but it's actually in the Bible. And so with that, I just kind of want to give a warning. We're in Jeremiah chapter three. Go ahead and open your Bible to Jeremiah three. Go ahead and get your Bible out. Get it open. If you want to take notes today, get ready. Um, God has an important word for us, but the nature of the text today is I'll just say PG-13, all right? Um, it's going to have a PG-13 rating. If most of our sermons are G or PG, this text is PG-13. So if you have little ones in here with you today, which I know we often do, I just want to let you know, I'm going to pray in just a minute. And if maybe you want to, you know, you're like, hey, PG-13, I'm not ready to have those kind of conversations with my kid. You can just slip out while I pray, and our Redeemer Kids team will be glad to take them to class. So let's pray together, and then we'll jump into our text. God, we come to your word this morning And we just confess to you, Lord, that we need your word. We need to hear from you, God. And so we open the book of Jeremiah. We hear the words, your words through the prophet. And we simply humbly ask that you would speak to our hearts what grace it would be to hear from you today. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are studying Jeremiah to learn more about God. We want to learn more about God, who he is, what he's like, and we want to study Jeremiah to see how he's worked among Israel in generations past. And one of the key things that we're learning, we started to see this last week as we looked at chapter 2, but we're seeing that God is a relational God. God is a relational God. He is at his core a lover, and he longs for intimacy with you. He wants you to know him. He wants to know you. He wants active, committed, loving union with you. He wants our hearts. And we see this in the Old Testament. We see that God has entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. Maybe think about a wedding ceremony. Think about what happens in our day at a wedding ceremony. There's two parties that take vows. They make a commitment to one another, a serious weighty commitment to one another. There's a marriage certificate. It's weighty. It's a significant commitment and covenant. Well, God has made a covenant in the Old Testament with Israel, and he wants to be intimate with them. He wants to know them and them to know him, and there's purpose in this covenant. In fact, the Old Testament covenant between God and Israel was meant to be a precursor to the kind of relationship that God wants to have with you today, with us, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But as we began to see last week in chapter 2, 
During Jeremiah's day, the prophet, Israel was not faithful to God. They had not been holding up their end of the covenant. You could say there were some significant relationship problems between God and Israel. In fact, in our text today, God is going to basically say that they have been spiritually adulterous. He's going to say, you have been like an adulterous spouse. Even more, he's going to say, you have been whores. You've been like whores in this relationship. It's a serious text. In fact, I want to just kind of catch you up on kind of all of Jeremiah, kind of what we've seen and where we're going. I want to frame it this way. We saw it starting last week in chapter 2, verse 1, and it will extend through chapter 3, verse 5 in our text today. God beginning to make this case. I said two weeks ago that the prophets were kind of like district attorneys. God would send them out to plead his covenant case. And so Jeremiah is basically making God's case to say, you have betrayed me. You have been unfaithful to me. And then starting in chapter 3, verse 6, which will be part of our text as well, extending through chapter 4, after God has made his case, after he's, if you will, held up the mirror and said, see yourself clearly, then he's going to call them to return. He's going to call them to repent. He's going to make a powerful case and say, come back to me. But as we know, God's people, Judah, they don't return to God. And so from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 9, we see God telling of the judgment that he's going to pour out. He's going to discipline them because he loves them. And we'll see that next week. We'll pick up with that next week and we'll see the grief and the pain and the sadness over God. But listen, here's the point. God is relational. He wants intimacy with you. He wants your heart. He wants you, his people, to be satisfied fully in him. But we, like the ancient Israelites, we often chase other loves. We give our affections to other lovers. And so we need to hear the word of God this morning, particularly how God feels. Let me say that again. We need to hear how God feels when our hearts are given to another. Let's look at the text. Jeremiah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would that not uh, would not that the land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me? God is continuing to address the betrayal of his people, and he begins by bringing up a familiar case law. If you uh, think about the Old Testament, after God rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus, he then gives them the law. And the purpose of the law was to, he had gotten them out of Egypt, and he gives the law to kind of get Egypt out of them, if you will, to teach them how to be his people, how to honor him, how to worship him, how to know him. And then we get into Leviticus and into Deuteronomy, and he gives even more specific laws. Well, this is a case law directly out of Deuteronomy 20. And case laws were kind of like clean up on aisle nine, okay? Like, you've already been sinful, you've already kind of made a mess of things, so let me give you some laws to kind of help clean up the mess a bit. And this case law that he's referencing here in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 through 4, was about how to kind of deal with marital unfaithfulness. And Deuteronomy 24 basically says that if a man divorces his wife because she is defiled or she is unfaithful, and then that woman goes and she marries again, but then is divorced again, so she's unfaithful again. Can the original husband take her back? That's the question. And God says, no. It's interesting. God says, no, you can't take her back. And there were a couple of reasons for this. One, the hope would be that the woman would fully devote herself to God at this point, not just run back to the next 
thing. But more importantly, the case law existed to keep women from being exploited in this situation, particularly from the husband. Hear this. The husband who might take her back, not because he loved her, not because he genuinely cared about her, wanted a relationship and intimacy with her, but because he could exploit her. He could receive a second dowry from her family in order to take her back. So there'd be no committed love, there'd only be gain. And so God, God, through Jeremiah, is saying to his adulterous people, he's holding this up and he's saying, you want to return back to me after you've been adulterous? Can, Can I even take you back? Would it even be lawful for me to take you back? Worse Then a twice-divorced wife, he says, you have played the whore. Jeremiah is using this image. He's saying, you've left me for other lovers, and those other things haven't worked out for you, and now you want to come back to me? But should I even receive you back? He goes on and he says, you've been like a whore with many lovers, and now you want to play married with me Again, this is a shocking image. And I want to just even give you some history to kind of help us better understand the image. Here's what's going on. During Jeremiah's day, when he starts his ministry, King Josiah is king over Judah. Before King uh, Josiah takes the throne, Israel had pretty much betrayed God. They had gone after the gods of the Egyptians and the Assyrians and now the Babylonians, and they've just completely rejected God. They haven't been faithful to him at all. King Josiah becomes king, and he starts to try to kind of clean things up a bit. He's like, hey, this isn't working out for us. Maybe we should return to the God of our fathers. And so they start to clean up the temple. They even discover some of the law that was in the temple that they didn't know about, and they start to reinstitute it and call people to obey it. You could think of it this way. Maybe if you grew up as a youth group kid in the 90s, like they come back from camp, and they're burning their uh, secular CDs, you know. There's like this real serious like camp high, return back to God. Um, This is kind of what's going on. But here's what God is saying through Jeremiah. He's saying, all of your stuff that you're doing, your attempt to return to me, none of it is sincere. None of it is motivated by sincere love for God, nor has there been sincere repentance. It's because you want God's protection. It's because you want God's blessing from Egypt and from Babylon. It's not because you love me. He's saying it's shallow. It's exploitation. That's why he brings up the case law in Deuteronomy. It's insincere spirituality. It's transactional. And to a relational God, it's insulting. It's demeaning. And so God is going to tease this image out even more. And we need to hear it. We need to hear how God feels about sin. If you're a sinner, raise your hand. (laughs) We need to hear how God feels about our sin. We need to hear how God feels about shallow spirituality. Maybe you're here this morning and your heart is cold toward God and you're just going through the motions and you're doing religious stuff with a cold heart. We need to hear how he feels about our spiritual apathy. Look at verse 2. Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see. He's holding up the mirror. He's saying, see yourself. See yourself accurately. Where have you not been ravished? That is an intense word. That is an intense word. Where have you not? It's an R-rated word. You could insert another our word there that that is very intense. He's saying, where have you not been ravished? By the waysides, you have set awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Where have you not turned, he says. Where have you not looked? Who have you not given your heart to? Where have you not slept around? He's saying, I've been here like a faithful spouse, faithful to you, faithful to the covenant, and you've been everywhere else but here. 
He says, like a whore you've been carried off by all the other things you've given your heart to. Like an Arab in the wilderness. And we need to understand this. This isn't like a racial put down that he's making here. It's another analogy. The Arabians would set up booths and markets along the roadside, uh, roadside for passersby, and they would sell things. But what would often happen is they would leave a mess of the roadways. And so he's saying, you've sold yourself to anyone and everyone, and in doing so, you've polluted the land that I've given you. You've made a mess of the land. Remember, land was critical to God's promise. Not only did he call them out to be his people, but he provided them with land, and he ushered them into the land. And he said, he's saying, your sin and the, your spiritual adultery of your heart, you've made not only a mess, you not only demean my name, but you've defamed even the land among the nations. You've made a mockery of me. You have absolutely disgraced the covenant. Church, we need to hear the pain of God over sin. You need to hear the pain that God is expressing. He's saying, I've loved you. I've stayed faithful to you. I have provided for you. I have saved you. I have poured out grace upon grace upon grace upon grace and blessing after blessing upon your life. And you are constantly turning from me, looking to other lovers, giving your heart's affections to other things. We need to hear the heart of God in the words of Jeremiah. Your sin and my sin and your spiritual apathy toward God, it grieves his heart. And we are often so indifferent about both. We are often so indifferent about our sin. It's not really that big of a deal, is it? It's not as bad as the other guy. It can't be that big of a deal. Yeah, I know that I'm kind of just going through the motions. I haven't touched my Bible. I don't really want to commune with God, but that's not that big of a deal. At least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. We are so indifferent, and we need to hear the heart of God. You see, God is speaking here with such strong, vivid, graphic even language because Israel didn't see their true selves. They had this shallow veneer of spirituality about them, and they felt pretty good about it. They had turned away from God and given their hearts to a thousand other things a thousand times while still feeling pretty spiritual, while still kind of going through the motions and doing church and maybe having quiet times and listening to their podcasts in the morning or cranking the Christian music in the house or in the car with the kids. All the while, their hearts are thousands of miles away from God in reality. And let me tell you what this text reminds me of. It reminds me of casual, nominal, cultural Christianity that is so prevalent in, this, in our culture. That's what it reminds me of. Or maybe even casual, nominal Christianity that could even be prevalent in this church. That's what it reminds me of. That, that way of thinking of, yeah, I can kind of do whatever I want and live however I want to want. I can chase after whatever it might be. I can be as materialistic as I want to be. I can engage and drink and food and sexual pleasure and as much as I want. It's not really that big of a deal. I can kind of do what I, want to want, what I want. God loves me. God will forgive me. God will always be there. It's that kind of casual, nominal uh, Christianity, that kind of apathy toward God and indifference towards sin. And I want to ask you, have you in your heart played the whore with God? Look at verse 3. God has more to say. He says, therefore, due to your adultery, due to the unfaithfulness of your heart, he says, therefore, the showers have been withheld and the spring rain has not come, yet you have the forehead of a whore. You refuse to be ashamed. Have you not just now called to me? My father, you are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? 
Listen to what God says. He says, behold, you have spoken. In other words, behold, you've cried out to me, you've come to me, but you have done all the evil that you could. What's he saying? This is important. He's saying, you've been out there spiritually sleeping around with the Baals and with the foreign gods. You've been sucked into the ways of the surrounding culture, the Egyptians and the Babylonians, thinking that their way of life might actually give you what you really want. And you were hoping that it would cause the rains to come. You were looking to the other gods and to the other idols of the culture to hope that it would cause your your crops to multiply. In other words, you've been looking everywhere else to try and improve your life and find your security and find pleasure or to make your meaning. And so what have I done? I have had enough of your adultery, God says, and I have shut off the rain. He's saying I'm disciplining you because I love you. He says, I'm withholding some of my blessing from your life in order that it might open up your eyes so that you would return to me. And now, now that the blessing's not there, you're coming back to me. Now that the other gods have failed you, you've returned to me. He says, yet you have no shame, he says. You have no shame. You have the forehead of a whore. There's no remorse. There's not even any awareness about your sin. And I just want to say, did you know that there come a point in time in our walk with Jesus, where we can be so casual about our sin, we can so grieve the Holy Spirit that our hearts can become so hard that we no longer even feel guilt or remorse over our sin anymore. We just are flatlined about it. Did you know that can happen in your life when you're casual about your sin? That's what he's saying. He's saying there's no real respect for God. There's no true love for him in in their return. It's exploitation. You only want what God can provide now that everything else has failed you, and so you've come back to me. God's not done. He has more to say. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said to him in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, the faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and played the whore? And I thought, After she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, underline that, did not fear. But she too went and played the whore, because she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land. Committing adultery with stone and tree, that's like shorthand language for the idols of the culture. Okay, so comfort and materialism or power or politics or sexual pleasure. She played the whore and she sought after all of those kinds of things in her heart and with her affections, looking to those things, giving her time and her money and her attention and her affection to all of those kinds of things. Verse 10, yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Real quick, we need some history here to understand what he's saying. Several hundred years before Jeremiah's ministry, Israel's kingdom had split. There was a bit of a civil war. And so uh, there was Israel in the north and then Judah in the south. One covenant with both peoples, Uh, that God has made, but they're experiencing a bit of a split during this time. And in 722 BC, Assyria, who was kind of the big bully on the block, politically speaking, they were the foreign power. They were the ones with kind of all the strength and the might and the army. Well, Assyria in 722 BC wipes out 
the northern kingdom, Israel. Completely wipes them out. Remember the whole top line, bottom line thing we talked about two weeks ago? What was happening on the top line looked like Assyria was flexing their muscles and uh, expanding their kingdom. Bottom line, God says, I handed them divorce papers. That's what he says through Jeremiah. They were unfaithful to me, and so I handed them over to their sin and their idolatry. Judgment. And he says, Judah in the south, you saw all of this. You saw how Israel in the north ignored the word of God through their prophets. Hosea and Amos came to them and spoke to them in the way Jeremiah is coming to Judah and speaking to Judah. And he's saying, you watched how they ignored my word and they didn't return to me. And so I handed them over. You saw how they got kicked out of the land. You saw all of it and you learned nothing. He says, in fact, you are worse. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what makes them worse? Well, verse 10 tells us. Look back at verse 10. He says, Judah gives lip service and they offer some religious performance to God, but they didn't return to God with their whole heart, but in pretense. Hear me. Taking our sin lightly and offering God half-hearted repentance, God says, is worse. It's worse. And there's a lot of us who know how to do church. There's a lot of us who know how to close our eyes and raise our hands. There's a lot of us who can, you know, quote the right authors and maybe even listen to the right podcast. There's a lot of us who can do lots of religious stuff and, and, and shallow spirituality, all the while our hearts are a million miles from God and reality. We can come in here and we can do religious stuff, yet we can have zero intention of actually trusting God with certain areas of our lives, with our sexuality or with our money with our career. We can chase after the same things that everyone else around us chases after money and sex and approval and power and comfort. And God says the pretending and the faking, it is even worse. He says, would you see yourself? Would you see yourself? He says it compounds the grief of his heart over our sin. He wants your whole heart. God wants all of our lives surrendered to him. He does not want perfection from us. He wants surrender from us. He wants our hearts. That's what he wants. But there are many of us who want to hold on to our pet sins as if God doesn't know our heart and know our lives. There are many of us who want to kind of follow Jesus as long as we can keep control and comfort. And Jesus himself says in Matthew 6, 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. God wants your heart. What is God saying through Jeremiah? Well, he's using some shocking, hard imagery to show us how he feels about sin and spiritual apathy among his people. He's holding up a mirror. God is relational. You were made for him. He loves you. He wants your heart, but he will not force himself upon you. And if you choose to go from him and give your hearts to other lovers, he will allow you to experience the dead end and destruction that comes from sin and idolatry. And now that he's held up the mirror and we've had to look into the mirror of his word, there are really two questions that we need to kind of wrestle with here before we move any further. Number one is what will we do when we look into this mirror of God's word this morning, what will we do with what we see? What will you do with what the Holy Spirit is even maybe stirring up in your heart and your mind right now? What will you do with it? Second question is maybe the more important question. What will God do with spiritually adulterous people? What will God do with us? He's going to answer those questions starting in verse 12. Look at verse 12. 
he has another word for Jeremiah. Go and proclaim these words to the north and say, return, underline that, return, turn around, come back. He's saying, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among the foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. God's answers are two questions very clearly. Number one, God calls us to return. He says, come back to me. I will not be angry forever. Hear me. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Anger is something that God rightly feels because of our sin. It rightly grieves his heart, and he is high, and he is holy, and he is righteous, and when his people sin against him, he feels righteous anger and grief in his heart as a loving father. It's something he feels, but you know who he is? He is merciful. At his core, he is merciful. Mercy and love are attributes of God. That's who he is. He can't escape it, and we can't escape it. Who is like our God? His love never runs dry. His mercy extends on and on. His grace is greater than even the whoredom of the human heart, and his mercy is available. He says, return. Come back. Return. But notice what else is in the text. His mercy and his grace and his love that goes on and on and on is conditional. It requires one thing, repentance, true repentance. He says, acknowledge your sin. He says, don't downplay the charge. Actually, see it. See yourself accurately. Look into the mirror. Admit the whoredom of your heart. Admit that you go after other lovers every hour and turn from it. Turn from it. This is repentance. Repentance is not awareness. You know, we can be made aware of our sin but that's not repentance. Repentance is not remorse. We can feel bad about our sin, but that is not repentance. We can feel sorrow over our sin. In other words, the, the consequential nature of our sin can bite us in the rear. I don't know why I censored myself on that one. There's other words I've been saying here. Uh, the consequential nature of our sin can bite us in the rear, and we can feel sorrow about that, but that is not repentance. He says repentance is acknowledging what is really true about you, seeing what you deserve, seeing what your sin has done to the heart of God, and then being melted by the offer of mercy, turning around joyfully, willfully, hopefully, and turning to God. You see, God is incredibly forgiving. God is generous to adulterous people like you and me. God doesn't make us grovel. He doesn't make us pay a penance for our sin. He doesn't demand another dowry. No, he pays the price for us. He takes our sin upon himself, and he extends free grace and mercy. Incredible. There is no one like our God. What mercy? But it goes further still. Look at verse 14. He says it again. Return. Fifteen times in this section. Chapter 3, 5 through 4, 4. He's going to say, return. Come back, return, come back, return, come back. He says it again, return, faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. 
I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, he's talking about this far into the future day. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil hearts. Something new will come that will change the hearts of humans. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers from a heritage. Now listen, this is an incredible promise that God just makes. He offers mercy, and then he gives just an incredible grace-filled promise to those whom he's merciful to. And there's kind of a short-term fulfillment of this promise and a long-term fulfillment of this promise. The short-term fulfillment of the promise is that eventually Judah would repent and would return to God. It would take exile. It would take the Babylonians coming from the north and them going and destroying the temple and them getting thrown out of the land and them going into exile in Babylon. Maybe, I think, most likely people think eventually they heard the word of Jeremiah again through reading these books and reading these scrolls while they were in exile. And then eventually they were brought out of the north, out of Babylon, back into the land. So God fulfills the promise. But the text is also doing more. There's this long-term promise. It's doing more. It's doing more than just recounting God's dealing with Judah in 600 BC. It is this forward-shouting prophetic word from God of what he would do for the whole world, what God was really working to accomplish. It calls all peoples to return to God, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter where you come from, no matter what is going on in your life. It's a promise that all peoples can have access to God, can return into the presence of a holy God. See, the prophet here is whispering to us the name of Jesus. Maybe you hear it in the text. He's telling us about Jesus who would come on the scene hundreds of years after this as the fulfillment of these promises. Verse 16 and 17 points us to the coming of Christ. It says that the presence of of the Lord in Jerusalem. It's talking to us about Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh, who would come and would dwell among us, who would live and die and be resurrected in order to create a pathway for all peoples, all humanity, to return to God. In fact, this passage goes even further. It anticipates a worldwide multi-ethnic new humanity living in a remade world that is to come. It tells us about Jesus, the great shepherd, the fulfillment of verse 15 that would reconcile his people with God through death and resurrection. Jesus, who would give a spirit, who would put new hearts within his people. Redeemer, because of Jesus, sin is disarmed. Because of Jesus, guilt is removed. We can return to God this morning, no matter what we see when we look into the mirror of the first part of this text. 
We can return to God this morning. The door is open to God, but the question is, will you return to him? Will you give him your whole heart this morning? Return to God. He longs for intimacy with you. He wants your heart. He wants your affections. He stands ready to receive you this morning. Will you return to God? If you've never walked with him, if you've never walked with God this morning, all that means for you is that you would just admit, my way of life isn't working. I want to try his way. I'm going to turn to God this morning. I'm going to give my life over to him. I'm going to give my allegiance over to Jesus. And if you were here this morning and you're a Christian, the call is the same. Return to him with your whole heart. Acknowledge that you have betrayed him a thousand times, that you've given your affections to other lovers, that you've looked to other things, that you haven't always been faithful to him. Return to him this morning through confession of sin, through repentance and faith. God stands ready to receive each one of us because of his mercy and his grace because of who he is, because of what he's done, because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in the place of our unfaithfulness. Amen? Amen. God loves you, and he stands ready to forgive you. Think about that. The ascended Jesus lives to forgive you, to receive you. He's given his spirit to warm up a cold heart. Return to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the mirror of your word. Lord, when we look into it, we are reminded that we are sinners. That we wander from you. That we put our hope and our trust in other things. In our bank accounts. In material. and fleeting pleasures of the world. We often take the shortcut and seek after the cheap thrill. And you call us to faithfulness to you. You call us to drink from the deep well of living water that never runs dry and that never leaves us unsatisfied. But yet, Lord, we often chase after broken cisterns, as your word tells us. God, we see that our sin, we see that it grieves your heart, that you are a lover at your core. And God, we proclaim your mercy this morning. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are abounding in steadfast love. Who is like you, O God? We give our hearts back wholly to you this morning. Holy Spirit, in this time of response, I pray that you would have your way with us, that we would not miss this moment. God, prune us, refine us, use us for your glory and your name. Draw us into your love. Remind us as we respond and as we sing, as we go to the table of your love for us, so undeserving. Holy Spirit, would you pour the love of the Father into our hearts this morning. Make us a faithful people. We don't want to serve two masters. We want to serve you, Jesus. We fix our eyes upon you this morning, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lead us in repentance, renew our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. I want you to stand and we're going to respond together. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.